Have you ever noticed that there is a soundtrack to the Christmas season? Most of us spend all of our lives listening to the same songs from the day after Thanksgiving until about December 26th every single year. Our new favorite artists simply revisit the same songs over and over and we don't even get tired of them. But rarely do we think about where these songs came from, their backstories, or about the deeper meaning behind them. Many of these songs of the season point to powerful theological insights and practical lessons that can deepen us or even bring us joy in the midst of the Christmas season. So let's look a little deeper into some of the famous Christmas carols that you know and love. A Little Town of Bethlehem, song by Philip Brooks and music by Louis Redner. As a young man recently graduated from Harvard University, Philip Brooks began his career teaching Latin in Boston, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, Brooks did not feel that he was reaching his students the way that he had hoped, perhaps simply because he was only a young man himself. But whatever the reasons, Brooks began to contemplate whether or not he should continue in the teaching profession. Looking for meaning and purpose in his life, Philip Brooks turned to his spiritual self and began a deeper study of the scriptures. His time and study ignited his true passion, sharing scriptural truths in a dynamic way that impacted everyone who heard them. Moving from Boston to the city of Philadelphia, Philip Brooks began as the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in 1861, and within six years, he had become the most famous preacher in the United States. To clarify how far-reaching his popularity was at this time, consider that in the year of 1878, Philip Brooks's sermons were published in book form, and that book sold over 200,000 copies, an amazing feat that cemented his reputation as the most popular and powerful preacher of the 1800s. As a matter of fact, his sermons are still studied by preachers today. But unfortunately, the era of ministry was a very difficult and sad one. It was in the midst of the Civil War, and almost everyone knew at least one person who had lost a son or a husband to the terrible conflict that divided the nation. Pastor Brooks looked around and saw dozens of widows in black, as well as grieving mothers who had lost sons in the war. It was taking a toll on him, and he was finding it nearly impossible to stay positive behind the pulpit, even though he knew he needed to find a way to recapture his passion for helping others. Pastor Brooks held out hope that when the war ended, a time of peace may be able to heal the deeply divided nation. However, at the very close of the Civil War, in April of 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, further dividing the nation. Although never having met President Lincoln personally, Pastor Brooks was asked to preside over his funeral. After all that he had seen and experienced, Brooks was at the end of his rope. He requested a leave of absence from his church and traveled to the Middle East to recuperate, to find his strength and passion once more, and to see firsthand the lands that were described in the New Testament. While there in Israel, Philip Brooks did indeed recover his strength, and most significant in this rebirth experience was a night that stood out above all others in his memory. It had occurred on December 24th, 
when Brooks had rented a horse and spent most of the day roaming the countryside near the city of Jerusalem. As early evening progressed into night, Brooks entered a small village which lie about five and a half miles south of Jerusalem and which was practically unchanged for centuries that had passed since that time and the time of the birth of Christ. As he entered that small town, he couldn't help but notice how simple it was, how small it was. And then he was awestruck to realize that on Christmas Eve, he was in the very place where Christ was born into the world. He was in the small town of Bethlehem. In the years that followed his experience in Bethlehem, Brooks consistently reflected on all that he had felt that night and how it had reawakened his spirit. Attempting to fully capture those emotions, three full years later, Brooks took pen to paper and wrote a poem that we now know as the lyrics to A Little Town of Bethlehem. Pastor Brooks knew, even in that moment though, that words alone would not be enough. And so he reached out to a friend who is the pianist at his church, a man named Louis Redner. As Redner read through the words of the poem, he himself was inspired and felt compelled to put those words to music so that they might share the composition with their whole congregation in the upcoming Christmas services. But try as he might, Redner couldn't seem to find a melody that captured both the simplicity and the majesty that Brooks's experience expressed. After hours of trying to find that melody, he went to bed feeling that he had failed. But instead, Redner was awakened in the middle of the night by inspiration. Redner was amazed to see how well the words from the poem and the melody in his mind fit together to make the beautiful Christmas carol we now know today as O Little Town of Bethlehem. Redner shared the song with the congregation who performed it and then began to share it with other congregations in the city of Philadelphia. As the song became more and more well-known, it eventually became popular all throughout the United States of America. In an amazing twist of fate, a man who was well-known for powerful sermons became not known because of any of those words, but instead became incredibly well-known for a small poem that captured his experience on Christmas Eve as he entered the little town of Bethlehem. All right. <clears throat> I hope you guys have found this background information and kind of the stories of the different Christmas songs as interesting as I have. It's been very interesting to me personally to go back and learn something. And I think this particular one is one that will help me personally to just kind of slow down a little bit. That's one of those more uh, calm and slow Christmas carols. And I think there's something to be found there when you know the story and how Everything was out of sorts in Philip Brooks's life, and then when he slowed down and put Christ back at the center, everything began to make sense, and he began to be renewed from the inside. I love that uh, nativity scene that you have seen uh, in this different one, but I wanted to focus today about this line from A Little Town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And 
I, I believe personally that the reason that the little town of Bethlehem is important is not because of how close it is to Jerusalem or anything that happened there other than um, the, the birth of Christ and maybe the birth of King David. Uh, Bethlehem was the house of David eventually becoming far, far eclipsed by becoming the birthplace of Christ. And so we talk about the hopes and the fears of all the years being met in this little town, but most importantly, met in the young baby that was born there. And I want to just talk about that for a moment. I think for us, when it talks about the hopes and the fears that we have all had, those things that are common to all humanity, it really boils down to the fact that we have questions of purpose, and we have wonderings about whether or not uh, we have a reason to be where we are, whether or not we are you know, just simply living out our life or if there is something that is more and deeper for us to be a part of. I think we also think about the idea of whether or not we can be forgiven for those things that even if you don't believe in right and wrong, there's still something inside your soul that tells you that there are things that you've done that were not the right thing to do. And so as we look at these possibilities, is it possible for us to have purpose? Is it possible for us to be forgiven? Is it possible for the creator to love his creation even as imperfect as we are? And all of these things are hopes, but also fears. And I think when he wrote the line of the hopes and fears of all the years being met in thee tonight, it is a beautiful line that sums up what the little town of Bethlehem song was all about. Now, I want to go back and I want to apologize publicly to Paul because I gave him so many names. Did y'all hear that? I mean, like every other word was a, was a name. And as soon as I walked off the stage a minute ago, I walked over to him. I was like, man, I'm sorry about all the names. I mean, I'm just sorry about it all. But there are names and there are people from history that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about what their inclusion in the lineage and genealogy of Jesus means for you and for me, because I believe that it actually does matter that they're there. We're going to talk about it. Now, how many of you have ever had in your mind, you know what, I'm going to read through the New Testament or I'm going to read through the Old Testament and then you got to one of these chapters that's similar to the one that Paul read just a moment ago. If you're in the King James Version, it says so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And by about the seventh or eighth one, you're like, uh, I don't know about that New Year's resolution anymore, right? I mean, it's hard to keep going. It's hard to really get something out of the so-and-so begat so-and-so or this person was the father of. But I want us to take a moment and believe it or not, on just this week before Christmas, I want to talk about those people that are in Jesus's genealogy in his line. And I want to talk specifically about the five women that are there and talk about why they matter to us, whether we're women or men, and why they matter to us so many years ago. So let's go to our next slide. And I just want to make sure that you understand. The Gospel of Matthew is written to reach a Jewish audience. It doesn't mean that's exclusively what it is, but that was the main target audience. And they, there are quotings and referencings of Old Testament scriptures approximately 60 times in 28 chapters. So that tells you there is a lot of scripture quotation going on. It's meant to reach the Jews, and they 
revered and honored the Old Testament scriptures. And so Matthew is writing to them to tell them how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these scriptural prophecies and other things. But as such, it was male in its orientation. I I don't think I have to tell you that most of the time in the ancient world, the male gender was elevated and the female gender was suppressed. And so I'm not saying that's positive. I'm saying that that's the way that it was. And so especially in the Jewish uh, uh, community, that was exactly how it was when Jesus was born. Everything was reckoned through the male side and the lineage and the descendants were figured through the males. And you can even see that as we look at the list that Paul read. There were a lot more men mentioned than women, but there were five that were mentioned. So Matthew goes out of that norm to include five women in that genealogy of Jesus. And I want to talk about who they were and why they're there and why it matters. So very quickly, who were the five? I'm going to give you a couple of them and then we'll talk a little bit and then we'll give you the final three. Now, I'm just going to say that some of this stuff that I'm about to share with you is it's not PG-13, but it's not exactly the kind of thing that you would love to have shared at polite conversation and at the dinner table. The first woman is listed as Tamar, and she's from Genesis chapter 38. If you want to go back and read her story, you can do that in Genesis 38. But she was widowed and she was childless. And see, back in those days, two of the biggest stigmas that happened to a woman was that she would be widowed and that she would be childless. So it was also a very dangerous thing. We'll talk more about that whenever it comes to Ruth. But as you look at her, widowed by a a man who passed, and then the brother that was supposed to step in and provide for her physically as well as emotionally, spiritually, and all these other things, and even provide an heir for his brother that was dead and provide an heir for the woman that was childless, All of this stuff was supposed to happen, and that second brother stepped in, and he also died. And so that was supposed to happen, and there was a third son, but he was very, very young. And so the man Judah, who was one of the tribes of Israel, you've heard of Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? You've heard of that before. And so as you look at that, Judah was the man whose namesake was the tribe. But here's what happened. This young boy, he said to her, he said, listen, I'm going to do right by you. So just wait, and thy son who grows up, when he gets to be that age, I will give him to you as the man who will come along, provide for you. You will no longer be childless. You will no longer be a widow. And she, he said, just wait. Well, this young man grows to be that age, and in the process of it all, he does not give her that man to be her husband, her provider, and that man that will take away the disgrace that she feels because of the stigmas of the community at that time. You guys all with me so far? Okay, so Tamar takes things into her own hands, and she pretends to be, wait for it, she pretends to be a prostitute, and Judah comes along and sees this prostitute and decides that he will employ her services. And in the process of that, she becomes pregnant, which was her intention. And then in the process of it all, Judah realizes she's only forced to do these things because I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. Are you guys with me? So 
tricked her father-in-law Judah into fathering an heir or a son for her. And by any term and any way around it, this is some funky business, right? This is not good. This is one of those things that you don't talk about when you get together for Christmas. Can I get an amen, right? And that's just the way that it was. It was, but we don't want to talk about it because it's not exactly the thing that you'd like to share in polite company. All right. So that's woman number one. Let's talk about the second woman. Her name was Rahab. And if you remember from Joshua chapter 2, she also was, uh, I can't even spell the word prostitute, Shelly. Please uh, just know that. I can't even spell the word prostitute correctly. There's a prostitute in Jericho before the walls fell. Uh, She hid the spies on her roof to keep them from being found and killed. But in a weird, weird twist of fate, She is mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame for her choice of faith in God when all that she could see were the spies, but she believed that God was at work. And so she said, I will save them. I will keep them safe. And then whenever they all come in and and the, the Israelites flood in to take the city of Jericho, I want to be remembered and I want you to save me. So this is exactly how it happens. And these two women are in Jesus's line and lineage and genealogy. Let's go to our next slide. Okay, here is the big idea. Have you figured out so far already that God's plan is bigger than our past? (laughs) Here is great news for you. The hopes and fears that you have that God is going to disqualify you or keep you at arm's length are unfounded, and this is good news. Because the truth of the matter is is that God says no matter where you've been or who you are or what you've done or what your past is like, I'm here to tell you that my plan for you and for humanity is bigger than your past or mine. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. So here is the big idea. God's plan is bigger than our past. Would you guys say this with me on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. God's plan is bigger than our past. Now, I want to talk about what that means, and then we'll come back to it. And don't forget, we got five or two down. We got three more to go. You know one of them is going to be named Mary, all right? Let's keep moving. As we go to our next slide, here's what this means and how it plays out. It's the dawn of redeeming grace that we talked about last week. That grace is unmerited favor. That's the way that you can term grace and define grace. But the word redeem means to buy back. And we constantly talk about how how God has redeemed us and how he has paid for us. And so because of this, we will spend eternity in heaven with him. And that is all true. That is not in dispute with what I'm about to say. But here's the good news. But wait, there's more. (laughs) The thing is, is that he bought our souls back. But the beautiful thing about God is that he's not done there. He's buying back your life and mine, not just to save us forever, but there's even more. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Let's go to our next slide. And as we do, this is our something to learn. Herod the Great, you guys know him. He's the man who's in that story in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's the Jewish king at that time who's trying to kill uh, all the babies to make sure that he remains king at that time. Herod the Great is not so great. Herod the Great went out of his way to delete parts of his genealogy that were an embarrassment to him. Okay? Now... You guys understand what I'm saying here. Basically, he had the historians who knew his history go, scratch that, and they're like, but sir, it's a part, scratch it, 
And they were like, okay, we will because we'd like to keep our heads right there on our shoulders, scratched, gone, forgotten, never to be mentioned again in history. But the thing is, is that the truth always has a way of coming out, doesn't it? It's just funny like that. But this is so interesting to me. Jesus, Jesus who chose his own lineage and influenced his own record keeper of it, Matthew. And I believe the Holy Spirit told Matthew what to write and what to include. So it's even further and deeper. But at very least, he walked with Matthew for three years of his life and said, include this don't, don't mark it out. Don't make it go away. And he chose to emphasize this part of his lineage. So think about this. Okay, now, uh, all right. Can we all just admit that we all got something in our past? It might not have even been us, but we all got something that we wish nobody knew about. Can I get an amen, right? Amen. Oh, is it just me? What? Y'all pretending that y'all are all perfect? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start judging y'all. That's what I'm going to start. No, I'm kidding. The truth is we've all got something. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's kind of bad. But it's always embarrassing. It's always stuff we don't want to share. We wouldn't want to talk about it. And here Jesus, the one who could actually choose whose line he would choose to be a part of and choose to influence the history that is told about him, said to Matthew through the Holy Spirit, Include Tamar in that one. Include Rahab in that one. And there are others still yet to come. It's an incredible thing. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to admit or say anything out loud. But here's the question that I have. If God's son is not embarrassed of his past, should we be embarrassed of the past that has brought us to God's son? I don't know. I don't think I've lived a crazy, crazy, crazy life. I don't think that I've lived, you know, something that people are going to say, this is the most amazing testimony ever. But I'll tell you this, there's a lot of things in my past that I wish I hadn't done. A lot of places I went that I shouldn't have gone. A lot of things I did, tons of things I said that I never wish I would have, I wish I never would have said. And that list is long. There's some things that I would absolutely 1,000% be ashamed to tell you. And I don't want to go into details, but here's what I will say. I will tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, the guy who stands behind this pulpit never has been, never will be perfect. I will let you down. You may even find out something about what I used to be before I became a Christian, before I got really serious about giving my life over to God. And you may even find out that even after that, I didn't always get it right. And when that happens, I'm going to tell you I'm sorry, but I'm also going to tell you I'm human. And I have a feeling that all of us are in that same exact boat. And when we start pretending that we're not, that's where things get twisted, man. Like the thing is, is that if you leave stuff in the dark, it starts getting warped and twisted around. But if you bring it out to the light, here's what I've figured out. If I tell you that I'm not perfect, if I tell you that I've struggled, if I tell you the truth of my own past, somebody comes up and says, let me tell you the past that Randy's got. I'm like, cool, I've already done it. <laughs> I've already said it. Because the truth is, is that for you and for me, whatever we've done in our past, God didn't put 
stipulations on, if you've done these things, cool, you're welcome. But if you've done any of these, you're disqualified. That's not the God we serve. And so I'm here to tell you whatever you have done, that God's plan is bigger than your past, no matter what it is. Can I get one more amen on that? Amen? So here's what I would say to you. Here's how that plays out, this second part of how it plays out. We talked about how he has redeemed or bought back our souls, but here's what's crazy, and here's what we often forget, that not only did he buy back our souls, but he also bought back our past, our present, and even our future. He's bought back our reputation, and he has decided that he will be the one who writes our story's last chapters. Now, here's what I want to tell you and make sure that you understand. Here's the deal. No matter what your story has been, if you are still sucking in air right now, and I think 99% of y'all are right now, so since you're still alive, you still have a story and a chapter yet to be written, and God has said that He will have His fingerprints on the last word of your life. So here's what that means. Here's how that plays out. If you've got things that you regret, let God lead you towards reconciliation and redemption from you to others, from you to those people that you love. Because it's not too late. God is still bringing about redemption, even still to this day. Now, very quickly, here's, we're going to keep moving, okay? Let's go to our next slide, if you don't mind. Who are these five women? Here's the third woman. The woman whose name was Ruth, and you can find her entire story, really, from the book of Ruth. She was a woman who was of Moabite descent, and so back in that time, if you were a Jew, then you were in God's good graces. If you were not a Jew, you were not in God's good graces. So culturally, she was at a distance from God, but clearly, with God saying, you are in the line of my son, and I want to shout you out and make sure that your name is included in his lineage, he's telling us that there is no culture that cannot be brought into the culture of faith and the family of faith. So no matter who you are, where you're from, it does not matter. She was a widow, a person who oftentimes would have had to turn to those things that the other two have already engaged in just to simply make ends meet because if you were not one to another person uh, that could take care of you, oftentimes you had needs that were beyond your ability to fill them. So you became a beggar or worse whenever you became a widow. Again, I say this is not the way that it should have been. This is the way that it was, unfortunately. And so Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, let's try our very best to make sure that you don't just simply remain a widow and instead pushed her to pursue what is known as the kinsman redeemer, that concept that I talked about, about one of the brothers stepping forward and taking care of her and providing an heir for her. All of this is once again in play, but not as a brother to brother, but as another part of a distant family. And she became the wife of Boaz in the line of Judah's tribe. This is the third in our group of five. Let's go to our next slide. Who is this woman? Fourth woman is Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 11 is where you find a lot of her story and a little bit following in some of the other chapters. She was Uriah's wife, widowed when King David had Uriah killed in battle because of an affair that they had had while Uriah was gone at war. How many of you guys remember this whole story? 
sordid business, man. Not, not polite company kind of business that you want to just air out. But she became Solomon's mother, though her name is not mentioned. She's even honored in the book of Proverbs where it talks about, when I was young, my mother taught me these sayings, the wisest man to have ever lived was influenced by a woman whose past you would not want mentioned if it were your own. Can you guys understand where I'm coming from? Okay, so very quickly, who is the fifth woman? And the fifth woman we know on our next slide uh, is Mary from Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and 2. And she was God's choice as the mother of Jesus. She was a virgin, but it was not easy to convey that truth when you're so young. She was probably somewhere between about 12, 14, 16 years old. And if you thought that it was crazy for your kids to get married when they were 20, I'm telling you, it was crazy back in the day, right? And so she was so young and she was likely stigmatized for her obedience all of her life. And yet what an incredible woman she was. These are the five women in Jesus's line. Now let's go to our next slide. So I want to just kind of revisit what Paul read just a few moments ago. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And then I put in those dots saying it just keeps going on and on from there. That's four of the five. Now, here's what I want to mention to you. Let's go to our next slide very quickly. When Jesus included those five women that we are talking about, he had three things that he showed us. And I'll talk about them and then talk just a little bit deeper. He showed us that he came for all, whoever we are, whoever we were, whatever we've done in our past. Whenever he included them, he included you and me, not because we are the same gender, but simply because we've all been there We've all done that, and we've all got stuff in our past that we wish wasn't a part of our past, but it just is. So secondly, what did Jesus do when he included the five? Secondly, he showed us that he has a new way for us to be identified or live with him at the center. In other words, these women all made choices to do the wrong thing, but then did not take that as the path that they would always have to walk. Every one of them made a decision to go in a different and better direction. All of these five, with the exception of Mary and, and Ruth, these other three, wrong path, new path. And whenever Christ includes them in his lineage, he's trying to tell us, hey, don't think that whatever is in your past has to be the determining factor of your present or your future. Let's go to our next slide here. Thirdly, he showed us that we don't need to keep carrying our shame. We don't need to carry our shame. In other words, whatever you've done and experienced and wherever you've been, man, you don't have to be ashamed of that because we've all been there. But also, Christ has been there. It's his family, and he didn't hide it. He said, I'm just going to tell you, this is what I come from. This is my family's life and line. But here's the truth. My life has its own merit because of God being at the center, and the same is true for us. Let's go to our next slide very quickly. I want to just do something. <laughs> this is the same exact passage of Scripture without the women. Okay? 
You guys with me? All I did was anything that had to do with the women, I just took them out. And I want to read this, and you can see if you have your scriptures in front of you on your phone or if you've brought the Bible or whatever you brought. You can see that this is how the whole chapter pretty much reads. And it almost would have been easier for the women to not be included. It would have been fewer numbers. It would have been more like the Jewish group that would have understood it and accepted it and all that stuff. See? Salmon was the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Rehoboam. It just keeps going, it gets there quicker, it rolls off the tongue, and it hides those things that you don't want to bring up. But in the process of it all, that is not how God wrote his word. That is not how God shared the lineage of his son. Instead, it included the women including their history and their past. And by the way, let me just be very, very, very clear. There's tons of men on this list that had a past as well, okay? I I couldn't even begin to go through all of their past. We know these women's stories, and the women stand out because of how unique they are. They would have caught a Jewish person's eye and gone, oh, so now that you know these stories, imagine this is your story. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Oh, Oh, let's not talk about it. You see what I'm saying? In the midst of it all, God is not ashamed. Not ashamed. You know what he would say, I think, and it's pure speculation on my part, I think he would just say, that's why I had to send my son in the first place, because good people do bad things, and good people's histories are littered with bad situations, and I'm the God who came to fix it from the beginning to the end, and redeem it all, buy it all back, and bring it back into the fact that your past is not in any way, shape, or form what is dependent. God's plan is not dependent on any of those things, and that's important for us to know. Okay, very quickly. How do we make Christmas mean more? And talk a little bit about that. And I want to hit these pretty quickly. First of all, we live for Him, not for self and not for others. In other words, if we're going to make Christmas mean something more, this is how we do it. We live for Him, we love Him for what He has given, and then we love others. No matter who they are, what they've done, what their past looks like, it is the thing that we have been given as the gift of being able to walk away from our past scot-free And yet we need to turn and give that to others as well. So this is how we make Christmas mean more. And I mentioned something very, very, very practical last week. And I want to mention it one more time. And I think I talked about this. Let's go to our next slide. We talked about how technology is speeding up time by tempting us in each moment to fill our attention to the brim. It leads us to remember less because it is only when we pay attention to something with a focus that our brain actively encodes it into memory. This is a quote directly from Chris Bailey, who wrote, Hyperfocus had nothing to do with any kind of spiritual book at all. But here's what I want to say. If you want this Christmas season to be better and different than it has been for you in the past, 
you have to slow down. And if you're waiting for the world to slow down, how many of y'all know it ain't going to happen? It just ain't going to happen. Your schedule's not going to get easier. Stuff is going to keep flying at you in a crazy way. And you will find yourself, wait for it, a lot like Philip Brooks, overwhelmed (laughs) at an emotional dead end and dead sea moment. But what happened in that story of a little town of Bethlehem being written? How did things change from being a dead time to something that literally changed his life? He later in his own diary said, the song that was given to me that night has been singing in my soul ever since. It changed him and brought him back to life when he slowed down and said, you know what? It is not about rushing through. It is about experiencing the Lord. Very quickly, there is an article that I want to just read through parts of and throw in my own bits, if you don't mind. It's called The Hopes and Fears of All the Years from DesiringGod.org. It says, in the first century, the historical marker at the center of the town of Bethlehem, if they posted such things, would have commemorated it as the birthplace of the mighty giant killer, King David. That cherished son of Bethlehem put that town on the map But perhaps, perhaps, as the dusty scrolls have predicted and the ancient prophets tell, it might be on the map again. But tonight, it's only silence. The prophecies are a distant memory, and all now is hushed and quiet. The hope of a king, only a memory muffled by the pressing priorities of life. Raising grain, raising sheep, raising children, and paying taxes to Caesar. But this night, the town finally sleeps, even though it's been crowded up to this point. It's been a hustle and bustle of census travelers returning home to be counted, and now they've gone back. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. So quiet and still and peaceful is the town that it's hard to capture it in our modern mind. So we have to imagine for a moment a slower pace And a quieter place. No iPods, no iPhones, no headphones, no surround sound, no jets, no traffic, no trains, no ambulances, and nothing racing down the streets. (laughs) And so during Advent, we slow our pace to match that pace of God. And we read the Holy Story more slowly, and we don't skim it. Instead, we watch as the new king of Bethlehem enters into a barn-like cave to rest softly in a rough feeding trough. And in the quietness of the night, the new king enters into the hay and manure of a broken world in desperate need of being fixed. This is the Christ who will one day die in daylight that becomes dark. But right now he rests in Mary's arm in a dark night that becomes as bright as day. Stars and angels pierce the night's silence. This same Christ enters lives just like he entered that stable. He enters the mess of sin and it catches us off guard. Are you surprised? Are you not ready for him? It all seems so sudden, but this is the best place to be taken by surprise, just like the little town of Bethlehem. Advent means Christ invades where the preparations are incomplete. You're tempted to first warm up the barn with space heaters, but don't do it. 
You want to sweep out the soiled hay and mouse droppings, but don't. Don't roll out a comforter, controlled mattress, or fluff a pair of feather pillows. Don't disinfect the walls, floors, or anything like that with Febreze or Lysol. (laughs) Don't set out a crib with a fluffy doll or a cotton onesie or any baby powder. Don't fill the bathtub with warm water with soft suds inside. (laughs) When the Savior draws close, there's no time to clean up the mess of your sin. He comes not to a place ready for him. No, the Holy One lands unexpected in the middle of all the mess of our lives. But the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And this is the message of Christmas. That here in this little town of Bethlehem, God broke through and descended into sinful humanity. And our opportunity that we have in 2022 is that we ask that Christ do exactly what the Christmas carol said. Cast out our sin and enter in and be born in us today. Very quickly, I want to go to the I apply by, if you don't mind. And this is how you apply. And then we're going to watch a very quick movie. You show him the love for what he has done for you. That means finding time this week. It means committing. And it means slowing down. And then you identify who is in your life that you can be a blessing to, but you have not yet. I encourage you to do these things and make this Christmas a little different. It is truly the true heart of Christmas. Let's check out this video as we close. It all began here, in darkness, stuck in our brokenness, wandering, directionless, in need of a grace we knew nothing about. It's not much of a beginning, but this is where we were. Fast forward, to a starry night in Bethlehem. You see, while we were lost in darkness, God was consumed by love. A love which led him to do the unimaginable. A love which would cost him his son. That night, the heart of Christmas began beating with a rhythm that would change the world. Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, was born. Grace in a manger, love in the flesh. Hope had overcome hopelessness. Mercy had triumphed over brokenness, and love had overpowered the darkness. Today, we celebrate that moment. We worship our Messiah, and we stand in awe of the life-changing gift God has given us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the true heart of Christmas. I challenge you this week to slow down and to allow Christ to be born again in your heart that it would not simply be such a rush to do all the things that you know that you need to do, all the family events and all that stuff that is going to keep you from finding any peace. But instead, I encourage you, even if it's just for a few minutes, to slow down 
and thank God for sending his son feet first into the mess of our world. Being willing to identify with those that others wanted to turn away from. People like you and me. People with a past. So that he might provide for us the ultimate future. Heavenly Father, please bless us as we go about our way this week. May you be foremost and in the forefront of our minds so that we might actually enjoy this Christmas season, that it would not be a hectic pace that gets us, but instead that we would be filled with your peace. And in the midst of it all, may we never lose sight of you, the one who has brought into our life the love and the joy that we desperately needed. God, thank you so much for sending your son. And Jesus, we worship you and we thank you for coming and identifying with us so that we in turn might have the opportunity to identify with you, the son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said together, amen.